0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 57 The Prince, part one. Thanks for listening in, and a very happy Gregorian New Year to you all. Okay, so last time out we spent what I hope was an informative half an hour looking at the Tatars and the Cossacks and their impact, perceived or otherwise, upon the history of Russia. This week we're getting back into the chronological narrative and looking in a bit more detail at the events of 1724 and early 1725, and finding out how, and with whose support, Catherine managed to become Russia's first female head of state. Whoa, but hang on a minute though, haven't there been at least two other women who were in charge of either Russia or the Ruslands back in the day? Oh, and while we're at it, if this episode is all about Catherine, why then is it called The Prince? Well, first things first. Yes, you're right, there have been other women in charge. St. Olga was at the helm between 945 and 960, and more recently, Sophia, Peter the Great's half-sister, had ruled Russia for eight years between 1682 and 1689. Plus, and a gold star to anyone who remembered this, Yelena, the second wife of Vasily III, had also steered the ship of state for a six-year period between 1533 and 1538. But, Olga, Sofia and Yelena had each ruled as regent for younger male relatives. Olga for her son, Sviatoslav, Yelena for her son, Ivan the Terrible, and Sofia for her full and half-brothers, Ivan and Peter. Whereas, Catherine would be the first woman to rule Russia in her own right. Although, and as we'll see, and here's half an answer to the second question that I posed on your behalf, it would be someone else, someone who knew their way around the block, who would actually be operating the levers of power. Okay, so the intro is done, strap yourselves in, and let's all do some history of Russia. There are a number of significant events or themes that shaped Catherine's state of mind during the early 1720s, which provide clues as to how she, and others, were thinking prior to, and at the time of, Peter the Great's death. The first, and probably the most fundamental, was her husband's failing health. Peter and Catherine's relationship, as strong and as happy as it was, had been based on what appeared to be simple, clearly defined, and mutually understood roles. Peter was the boss, and he set the tempo for the royal marriage. And Catherine pretty much did, as she was told, or that's what she let Peter think. And she followed her husband's lead, flattered him, and when necessary, soothed his fevered brow, knowing that he would soon be better and back to his usual self. The trouble was that, starting in 1723, and throughout 1724 and 1725, Peter was very rarely his usual self. He was taking longer and longer to recover from his various ailments, which left Catherine in somewhat uncharted territory. And this unfortunate change in circumstances meant that the Tsar, for weeks and months at a time, was no longer physically able to take the lead role, leaving Catherine somewhat brotherless and perhaps starting to think of a Peter-less future and her role and that of her daughters within it. Then came the events of 1724. In May, there was Catherine's coronation as Empress consort, something which Peter, during a period of recovery, seems to have arranged spontaneously. But was this just done on a whim? Could there have been an ulterior motive? Could the coronation have been a joint decision designed to strengthen Catherine's future position at a time when Peter's health was starting to become a real concern? Or had Catherine alone actively pushed for the role? Now, unfortunately, we can only guess, but throughout the summer and autumn of 1724, husband and wife seemed to be on the same wavelength, and when Peter wasn't confined to his sickbed, things seemed to be almost ticking along as normal. But that all changed in the November, when Peter discovered that Catherine's chamberlain, Willem Mons, the brother of his ex-mistress Anna Mons, had been cooking the books, and perhaps, even though it was hard for him to believe, had been, and still was, his wife's lover. Now Catherine either bravely, or stupidly, or both, tried to defend Mons's actions, which led to a typical Petrine explosion. And then, as per Simon Sebag Montefiore's The Romanov's, Peter screamed out the following. I made you, and I can unmake you as easily as this. And then he proceeded to smash an ornate Venetian mirror. In November, Mons was beheaded, and a tense, uneasy atmosphere prevailed at court, a situation that wasn't helped by new allegations of fraud that had been made by Peter against Menshikov who, in desperation, turned to his ex-muse Catherine for help. And this awkward, turbulent period finally ended in January 1725 when Peter fell ill again and everyone realised that this time he wasn't going to recover. So what do we make of all of that? And more importantly, what were Catherine's thoughts and her hopes for the future? So, let's try and break that all down into some basic chunks. Did Peter want Catherine to succeed him? Well, up until the villem Mons affair, I would have said yes. But after that, I'm not so sure. And I would probably say, no, he didn't. So who did Peter favour? Again, we'll never know for sure, but I suspect either his grandson, Peter Alexeyevich, or perhaps at a push, his eldest daughter, Anna Petrovna even though the latter, and her soon-to-be husband, Duke Duke Charles Friedrich, had signed away any rights to the succession. Did Catherine actually want to succeed Peter? Now, some sources point out that the Empress Consort didn't have a single ambitious bone in her body, whilst others suggest that anyone who had risen from the lowest rungs of society to become Empress must have been an extremely determined, And calculating person. And so again, frustratingly, the jury is out. So who did want Catherine to get the top job? Well, there was really only one person, someone who'd been a long-term confidant, an ally of the Empress, and who, like her, had started right at the bottom of the food chain, and then had somehow managed to climb to the upper echelons of Russian society and power. Alexander Danilovich Menshikov. But why did Menshikov want Catherine to be the ruler of the Russian state? What was in it for him? And what about his chief ally, Pyotr or Peter Tolstoy? Well, for Menshikov, there were three main reasons. One, despite his run ins with Peter, Menshikov was a firm advocate of the former Tsar's European, progressive, and reform-minded approach, and he recognized that if that system were to continue, Catherine was, at this particular time—and those are important words—and in his eyes, the only possible candidate, even if it meant breaking with centuries of tradition by having a woman on the throne. Two. Menshikov who was now 51, trusted Catherine, who was 40, and she him, and both had reached their positions the hard way. A Muscovite pie seller and a Polish-Lithuanian peasant's daughter was a match made in heaven. Not that there was anything romantic in the slightest about their relationship. And then three, and probably most importantly, Catherine as empress meant security for Menshikov and his past ill-gotten gains and whatever he might be able to get his hands on in the future. Tolstoy was happy to support Catherine's accession for a different reason, fear of reprisals from those who supported Peter Alexeyevich's claim to the throne, the Dolgorukis and the Golitsyns, because he'd been instrumental in the downfall of young Peter's father, Alexei Petrovich. We don't know exactly when this Catherine, Menshikov Tolstoy, Troika was formed, but it must have been before Peter the Great's death on the morning of the 8th of February, because on the same day, a series of events unfolded, which meant that by the evening, Catherine had been proclaimed as Empress of all the Russias. So how did they pull it off? Well, by rapidly enacting a series of simple, preordained and tried-and-trusted steps. At 4am, a couple of hours before Peter died, Menshikov and Tolstoy spoke to the commanders of the guards regiments and gained tacit approval for their plan, helped, in no small way, by a large cash bonus or bribe that was paid out to the guards, in Catherine's name, of course. As soon as Peter was dead, the aristocratic inner circle gathered to determine who should be the next to rule, but unbeknown to the Galitzins and the Dolgorukis, it was already too late. Because whilst they were stating the case for the nine-year-old Peter Alexeyevich, Peter the Great's grandson, to succeed to the throne, guards' regiments had effectively blockaded the palace and had started shouting out their support for the Empress consul. Peter Alexevich should reign with Catherine as regent, but Tolstoy stated bluntly that no one wanted the rule of a child, at which point the guards, some of whom had now entered the building, cheered and shouted even louder. Menshikov, seizing the moment, proposed that Catherine should be named as autocrat and empress, to more cheers and shouts, and on cue, Catherine entered the room and was proclaimed as the new ruler of Russia. A decision that by the end of the day was rubber stamped by the Senate and the army generals. Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt, job done. But of course, when a new ruler ascends the throne and the cheers have died down, they need to take care of a few things. And for Catherine, there were several key priorities. Priority number one was her husband. Now Peter had been embalmed and had lain in state throughout the month of February but preparations for a single funeral suddenly became preparations for a double funeral when Catherine and Peter's youngest daughter Natalia died from measles. And so the now joint service didn't actually take place until March the 8th. Natalia was buried alongside the rest of her eight brothers and sisters who had died in infancy. However Peter's body remained on open display, and in fact, would do so for a further eight years. Next on the list was a royal wedding. Now, then, as now, a royal wedding was the ideal vehicle for exhibiting dynastic strength, unity and vigour, mixed in with a huge dollop of pomp and ceremony. Plus, of course, it had the added bonus of taking people's minds off of all manner of other, more onerous things. This particular wedding, however, presented a couple of minor challenges. The bride, Catherine's eldest daughter, Anna, was viewed in certain circles as being slightly tarnished goods because she and her sister, Elizabeth, had been born before her parents had been officially married. The groom, Karl Friedrich of holstein gottorp or, in German, Karl Friedrich Herzog von schleswig holstein gottorp could best be described as an important yet minor royal, who perhaps wasn't the greatest catch for a Russian princess. And yet, he'd been seen by Peter as a potential threat because a. he wasn't Russian, and b. his uncle on his mother's side had been Charles the Twelfth of Sweden. Hence probably why Peter had wanted the couple excluded from the Russian succession. In spite of these impediments or distractions, Catherine wanted the best for her daughter, and that included Menshikov as the organiser-in-chief for the ceremony which went ahead without a hitch in May 1725. Priority number three was about the scratching of a niggling itch, and concerned the former emperor's first wife, Eudoxia Lopuchina. Remember that in the aftermath of Alexei Gate in 1718, Eudoxia, who'd been detained since 1698, had been moved to a more austere and secure monastery near Lake Ladoga. Well, this wasn't good enough for Catherine, and for reasons of state security, well that's what she said, and probably spite, she arranged for the long-suffering Eudoxia to be moved to a dungeon in the Schlisselberg Fortress near St. Petersburg, where she would be held in strict confinement. But don't worry too much, though, because we haven't seen the last of Eudoxia Lepucina. So with those immediate tasks settled, Catherine turned her attention to the next two things on her list, improving the lives of those at the bottom of the pile, the serfs, and getting to grips with the day-to-day running of the empire. And for the first, the empress commissioned a report and discovered, as she'd probably suspected, that the serfs and peasants were facing large-scale impoverishment and in certain areas, starvation. And so as an immediate step, the poll tax was reduced to 70 kopecks per serf, and any arrears accrued up to 1723 were waived. For the second, her initial approach was to try to do everything herself, and keep Menshikov, Tolstoy, and the other, constantly, constantly squabbling heavy hitters, out of the picture. She ordered the Senate to report directly to her but soon became overwhelmed with the sheer amount of effort required to get even the smallest of things done. And so, gradually, captaining the ship of state became more and more onerous, and more and more of Catherine's time was being spent on what had become another priority or passion, party like it's 1725. And boy did the Empress love a party. It was like the jolly company all over again, but this time without the nastiness. The key aim seems to have been to drink as much alcohol as possible, crawl into bed at 9am in the morning, and then get up at 5 in the evening and start all over again. Now this routine, trying to run the country directly and drinking herself into oblivion, lasted three months before Catherine, in a moment of clarity, decided, or was advised, to let someone else take on the stress. And in reality, there was only one man for the job. Menshikov, who'd probably done the advising, was now that man. And at some point in the summer of 1725, when everyone and his dog were partying and the government was going through the motions of governing, he got busy. And the first step of getting busy was to establish himself at the epicentre of all things and make himself completely indispensable. Everything, however small, would go through him. But this was only a means to an end. His main aims were twofold. 1. Obtain as much money, land, and as many titles as possible, and then 2. Get his 15-year-old daughter Maria into the best possible marriage. Menshikov worked hard, and made sure he was seen to be working hard. He continued Catherine's initiative to improve the lot of the serfs and peasants by bringing in harsh punishments for landowners who were guilty of hiding serfs and peasants away from the tax bailiffs. And if a bailiff colluded with a landowner, or turned a blind eye, then it was the death penalty for him. However, once he'd got his feet under the table, the old, grasping Menchikov reappeared. First he obtained the title of Generalissimo. Now, Menchikov was one of the first to hold this title, Stalin would be the last, which put him at the head of the other generals and marshals, and then, incredibly, a few months later, Catherine bestowed the title of prince upon her old friend, even though he hadn't a single drop of royal blood. To all intents and purposes, then, he was now the de facto ruler of Russia, or the half-tsar, as the poet, playwright and novelist Alexander Pushkin would later call him. And with the titles came vast awards or appropriations, no one seems to be completely sure how he pulled it off, of land and serfs. So that by the end of 1725, Prince Menshikov was the proud owner of thousands of villages, several towns, over a quarter of a million serfs, or souls, as they were referred to in polite circles, and he was even building his own palace in St. Petersburg. Now obviously, this over-the-top, in-your-face, ostentatious enrichment and favouritism started to rattle a few of the other grandees' cages. And when the murmurings and unrest reached Catherine, she decided to curb the prince's endeavours and ambitions by putting in place, in February 1726, the Supreme Privy Council, or in Russian, the farkovny tainyi soviet which would tie Menchikov together with five other equally ambitious and scheming men. With the introduction of the Supreme Privy Council, Catherine was sending the prince a message. They'd gone too far. He knew it, and she knew it. And while she'd been either too kind, too lazy, or too trusting, now she was back calling the shots. Or at least, that's what she imagined she was doing. OK, we'll leave it there for this week. Next time, we'll take a look at the makeup of this new council, and Menshikov's and Catherine's reactions to how things panned out. Plus, we'll get to see just who the prince had in mind to be his daughter's husband. So until then, dear listeners, heads down, chins up, stay safe, and look after yourselves. And I'll be back with you soon for some more History of Russia.